Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the first of these pre-performance events of 2012 and the beginning of the second half of English National Opera season. Um, can I just do house notices first? Um, would you make certain you've turned off your phones? Uh, anything else that whistles, sings, buzzes, dances and does untoward things? Secondly, we're recording this for a podcast on the Eno website. Um, and could you make certain you don't take photographs while you're with us? That too is forbidden. And I always, if you've been here before, you'll remember this, need to faintly apologise for what may be the sounds of revelry of a bacchanalian nature from below. Once we get towards the end of our session, um, the general public, the audience arrive and uh, are in the bar below. Um, Perhaps a few words about De Rosen Cavalier first, though I imagine that most of you here will certainly probably know the opera, may have seen it several times. It was created, of course, by one of, by three of, the, two, one of the three greatest, perhaps, of all partnerships in the opera house. There's Mozart and Da Ponte, Verdi and Boito, and Richard Strauss and Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Strauss and Hofmannsthal first met in 1900, but their first collaboration didn't emerge until five years later, and it was, of course, the opera. Opera Electro, in which Strauss asked Hoffmannsthal to adapt his play for him as a libretto. From the very start, this was clearly a fruitful and I think to some extent a happy partnership. We were, said Strauss, born for one another. After they'd finished Electro, the great question became what should they do next? Hoffmannsthal, a poet and part of Viennese literary society, um, was much preoccupied at this period with French literature from the 17th and in particular the 18th century, and also with Mozart's Figaro. And in a way, Figaro was perhaps the starting point in his imagination for what happened next. He decided that he wished to buy, write a Mozartian comedy. So, in February 1909, he sent Strauss a, I quote, scenario for an opera full of burlesque situations and characters with lively action, pellucid, almost like pantomime. It contains just two big parts, one for a baritone and another for a graceful girl dressed up as a man. Period, the old Vienna under the Empress Maria Theresa. Strauss was delighted by what Hoffmannsthal sent him and began work almost immediately on what was called not Der Rosenkavalier at the beginning, but Ox von Lerkenau, indicating quite clearly where at least Hoffmannsthal thought the weight of the drama and the meaning of the story lay. As he was working on Acts 1 and 2, Hoffmannsthal wrote to Strauss, do try and think of an old-fashioned Viennese waltz, sweet and yet saucy, which must pervade the last act. Well, I'll talk a little more about the last act in a moment. But it would seem to me, at least, that it was Hoffmannsthal then who is partly responsible for perhaps the most glorious of all the anachronisms in this piece that pervades the whole score, that sequence of 19th century waltzes, which would, of course, have been completely unfamiliar to the Viennese at the time when the opera is set to the reign of the Empress Maria Theresa. Our guests tonight are Catherine Boderick, who covers the role of the Marshallin, uh, and she will be singing for us twice. Um, and our principal guest is the man who will lead the whole performance tonight. Would you please welcome the English National Opera's music director, Ed Gardner. Ed, I thought I'd divide our conversation into two parts. It's irresistible, since you're here, not to talk about your role as music director, and then perhaps we'll talk a little bit about this extraordinary score. Um, what does the music director of English National Opera do? Um, I suppose it's a 
globally, I'm responsible for, uh, for for everything that happens musically in the theatre. So the running of the of the chorus and the orchestra are really they're, they're my family and they're the people I look after mainly. Um, and everything you see on the stage in terms of the music making is, is, is my responsibility. And I'll conduct every year about a third of the operas. If we do 12 or 13, I'll do, I'll do four or five of the operas. And uh, the ones I pick, I mean, uh, everyone has their own personal favorites, but they tend, the operas I, I'll tend to do are the, big, the bigger company pieces, so the ones that, that require the whole chorus and, and require you know, the, the, the largest orchestra, the, the, the big galvanizing company pieces. That's a short answer to it. And, and when you make those choices, is there a sense in which what you want to choose are not only big pieces that show the company at its best, but pieces that you yourself have never had an opportunity to, to work on? Um, well, th there are a lot of operas I've never had the opportunity to work on. As, that's the issue that you're... I mean, as a, as a younger conductor, you're doing lots for the first time. I mean, I think you can't... In this position, in this opera house especially, you can't, in my position, be completely selfish about saying, I want to do this of Wagner this year and this of Verdi the year after, because... Um, we have to, you know, we have to fish around for the right directors. We have to catch singers at the right points in their careers for certain roles, and all these things have to come together. So, you, you've got to think a little bit more globally for the sake of the company. I think. When you were appointed, did you have the sort of back of the envelope ambitions for what you wanted to achieve? Um, I think. Uh, I mean, not specific. I wouldn't, wouldn't ever say specifically. I mean, I just work at my own standards and the standards of. Of the, of the chorus and the orchestra and the quality of the casting. I think that's, I mean, those are, I mean, just getting everything, uh, trying to improve in myself and everything around me, what, how the music sounds. But pieces that you hope might, might be in the repertoire, did you have ambitions for particular pieces? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's already five years ago since I started, actually, so it's, uh, I, I, it's amazing. I did this, the Rosa Cavalier was, was one of the first operas I did. I think it was the fourth opera I did here as music director. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, an initial thing was to was to get more late Verdi into the back back into the repertoire because there hadn't been so much over the over the preceding years. Um, and longer term, we've we've talked about Wagner, but I was I was quite kind of I was quite clear I'd, I wanted to hold off for a few years. But now now we're coming to to the point where I'm going to um, introduce some Wagner myself into 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 the repertoire. Yeah, it is of course a company with a an extraordinary Wagner. Reputation, isn't it? Yeah. If you look back to, to, to the, the first great ring in English here. Mm. I think it is. And I think it's... Um, what Reginald Good Goodall did was extraordinary in terms of the sound of Wagner. I mean, not just for this country, but for, for, for Wagner everywhere. Uh, and actually, the theater, this theatre, I think certain music naturally sounds good here and certain music is more difficult. I think chamber... Repertoire is hard here. Bring you off a Mozart opera well. Bring you off a, you know, the fizz of a Donizetti well. Um, but Strauss and Wagner are really delightful here because there's a sort of there's a there's a plush quality to the sound, and it, it just it suits that repertoire so well. I mean, sitting in the auditorium for Parsifal last year, I just I, I couldn't believe quite how good the sound was at this theatre. Can you do things to make the smaller pieces work? I mean, you raised the orchestra pit, for example, for Castor and Pollux, I think. Yeah, that was great. And actually, that's something we've been going on for a long time. I mean, th that's a unique experience because the, once you raise it, all the obstacles on the side become bigger, basically. So you can only do it with the very, very smallest repertoire. So that was only possible because there wasn't a, a full complement of winds and, mm. and brass. Um, my next challenge is, is Don Giovanni in the autumn, where where I'm going to 
I'm going to, we're working on individual raises so the string players are higher actually because it's the strings who are most compromised by the deep pit and um, hopefully that means that the impact on the sound for, for you, the, the watcher and the listener is, is much more direct. How closely are you involved um, not only in choice of repertoire but in those um, who are going to design and direct? I mean is this, is this part of something that you're, you're involved with as music director too? Yeah, uh, John Berry, who's the artistic director, and I. Uh, John Berry's he, he, his his remit is much more visual, and his his tastes are much more visual, than, and mine are you know obviously oral. And we come together and we discuss everything really. I mean, I'm I'm very with the directors and designers who do my shows. I'm very involved with that at an early stage. And something something I've learned about this job is that the earliest you can start talking to a director about what they think about a piece, the the more likely you are to find you know something unique together between the music and the drama. So I, I mean that's something I, I've got better at over the last few years. Um, so specifically the pieces I work on, yeah. And, and, and what does the nature of that, those early conversations, what, the, what form do they take? I mean, what are the things you want to know from who's going to direct for you and design for you, and what do you want them to know from you? I think they need, a director needs to know what you think of the piece and what you think is important in the piece and what should be brought out, both visually uh, and dramatically, as well as musically. Um, uh, I want to. I want to know that the singers are going to be heard at a very basic level, and uh, and if directors haven't done much opera, that can be you know that can be quite a battle you know sometimes because people are used to much smaller spaces where two actors speaking side on to each other is perfectly acceptable. In, in opera houses and big opera, that's not that's not the case. So I'm um, getting through those conversations early. I mean, one of the great experiences of this process was with Terry Gilliam, who I met to talk about Damnation of Faust about two years in advance. And he was so clear about what he wanted, but also so mm. able to collaborate on what was needed musically. Mm. It, was a, it, was, it was really a great pleasure. Mm -hmm. But that must have been, I mean, to judge by what we saw and said, a very special relationship, actually, what you achieved in that. It was, yeah, it was, it was really great. I mean, he's, he, he's a remarkable combination of, of collaborator and visionary, and I think that's, that's what you really look for. I mean, to be honest, as both in a director and a conductor, the ability, an opera conductor, the ability to, to you know, to form an incredibly strong opinion of what you want, but to be able to mould it to the other, you know, down into the pit or up onto the stage. Do you have time during a production, um, if it's one of yours, obviously, to go and watch what's happening in the rehearsal room with the director? Or are you simply at that stage working with the singers musically? Oh, no, I... So, the... the, the the, the rhythm of a, putting an opera on is goes something like this. You do a couple of days of music rehearsals alone with a singer, and then all of us, with, with pianists, are in a rehearsal room for four or five weeks. So all the music staff, uh, the conductor and the director, and then he creates the play, the theatre of the piece, with me there, you know, getting in um, and doing music on the sides. So it's done, it's done very much together. Mm. And, and, and at that moment, do you defer to him, or does, I mean, who has who has control at that moment in the rehearsal room? It depends how you play. I mean, the old-fashioned way of, of doing this, and I, I, this was really evident when I went to and did um, our production of Death and Venice in Milan, would be that the director rules for four weeks, and the conductor, more than likely in a place like that, isn't even there, um, and they do four weeks in the studio. And then I was given this day of, of music five weeks in, which presumably is when a conductor normally turns up and tells, tells them what they want. And then from that point on, 
in a theatre like that, traditionally, the conductor would just do what they want, really, mm. and just say, no, you can't do it there, That's, uh, you're never going to be heard, and pull people to the front of the stage. Um, that's not really how I, how I work, and the sort of directors that I work with wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate it anyway. You, you've, got to, you've got to form a good enough relationship with the director that, that you can say to them, that is terrible, going to sound terrible if you put a singer there, and it doesn't work dramatically for this reason. And they need to be able to say the same things to you. So that when you get on stage, and we only have something like four days on stage for, to put together everything dramatically, costumes, wigs, musically, um, with the orchestra. And you, you don't really want surprises at that stage. You really want to galvanise something, something together. And that presumably also means that what actually happens when you move into the first performance is something that everybody who's been involved agrees with. You haven't got that moment, no names, um, no factual, where the conductor is supposed sometimes to have looked in his score and not looked up once at the stage because he so hated the production he was conducting. Um, well, I don't... It's very difficult. I think in my position, um, I should be involved enough, early enough... Generally, I mean, there are always things that won't work, but you should be involved enough, early enough in the process, that you should be able to find something together with the director. I don't, I don't really think there's any excuse to... I mean, the, an audience, I think, tells immediately if, if the music-making isn't tied in somehow to the drama on the stage. Um, and my greatest experience of watching opera as a, as a kid were when I felt this connection between... I couldn't believe that music could be that dramatically, you know, inspired and, and vice versa. Um, and I think, I think, to be honest, I think as a, if, if a conductor and director set themselves up like that, I think they're doing their, their audience a great disservice. Thank you very much, Lee. We're going to talk again yeah. at the end of the session a little bit about Rosen Covenant, but thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, our two artists this evening are Catherine Bodrick, who covers the role of Dee Marshallin, and Martin Fitzpatrick, a member of the English National Opera Music staff, and they're going to perform two short pieces from Act One of Der Rosenkavlia. You will, of course, know if you know the opera, um, it scarcely lends itself to cutting out arias, cutting out little bits, so they will be, as it were, pieces from Act One. This, the first one is from the uh, exit of Baron Ox, and it's the Martian. Would you please welcome Catherine Broderick and also Martin Fitzpatrick.
There's something so infinitely sad about that passage, isn't there? Very sad. And, and do, do we need to know about the Marshton's life before the curtain rises? Do we need to know to understand why there's this strain of melancholy in her? The short answer is no. I think there are two aspects to this. The first and, and rather mundane one is that in a way, the Marshalin doesn't exist outside of her husband. He's, he's the Feldmarschall, and she has, she has her title from him. And in a way, her life 
is a reflection of his. But in the second way, it's just so vividly written. Hoffman style and Strauss have just done such a good job of forming this character. She is so well-rounded. She's, she's not a, a caricature at all. She's believable. She's rich. She's vain. She's, she's made bad uh, judgments of error uh, of judgments, and um, she's behaving in a way that she's not proud of with Octavian, and it seems she has to go to confession after every meeting with Octavian. <laughs> she talks about going to church a lot. And the character is so well-formed and well-rounded. It, I think it's really unnecessary to know anything almost about the opera before, before you arrive as, as an audience, and, and they give you such a lot. It's wonderful. In, 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 in the first act... She is deeply concerned about the passing of time. And, 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 and clearly, the sense of time passing is there in what you've just sung. How is this? And those wonderful, mysterious chords that Strauss produces. How do we understand all this, which will crop up? Time really is, is, is the thing that puzzles her, isn't it? She wants to stop the clocks. And it things. is. I mean, I think her whole life, she's possibly been pushed into situations. She talks about, in that excerpt, she talks about her marriage, coming from the convent and going straight into a marriage. And she's, she's having an affair with a much younger man. And the difference in their ages is obviously a concern. And she, if she could almost crystallise the moment that they're together, then, then that would be a solution. But she can't. And time is just... She can see herself growing older. And in the next excerpt as well, she, she, she can't bear getting older and she gets up in the middle of the night and stops all her clocks and it's so sad that this woman who is so wonderful in so many ways, she's, you know, she gives to charity, she's, she, she's a wonderful woman and she's almost the catalyst for every single, um, every single thing that happens in the opera, she, she's the link and she's, she can't bear the fact that she's getting older and she can't stop her life, and there's a sense of she's... Her life has been a disappointment. She's, she's not been able to do what she's wanted with her life, and, and she, can't, she can't stop the, ro the rolling of time. Is this a difficult role in terms of the technical business of seeing it? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, it's really difficult, but... In a way, it's such a gift as well, because Strauss writes, and I have no idea how he does it, but he writes in speech rhythms, and they're very difficult to learn, because they look so complicated on the page. But once you've learnt them, it feels like the most natural thing to sing in these, in these rhythms. You, you heart, it, it feels like speaking. And, and indeed, we were talking in rehearsals earlier how... Um, you could almost perform the opera without the music. You could do a play, and it would make complete sense because there's absolutely no padding. All the text is is required, and and it's. I think that really makes it easier. Once the notes have been learnt, once the rhythms have been learnt, and the entries and and everything, it's it's actually such a gift to sing it. So. And also, in the end, it is she who has the beginning of the, the most sublime moment in this opera, yeah, isn't it? and the most frightening. <laughs> the vocally. Very, vocally frightening. This is the trio, of course, yeah. yes, at the end. And, uh, I mean, the trio is so important because the, through the whole of the opera, the drama moves and moves and moves and never stops. And 
there's always this dramatic energy and and time with the time moving on and actually just for a few minutes of the trio time stands still and there's the old relationship of the Marshallin and Octavian that's completed and finished and the budding relationship between Octavian and Sophie and time does stop still for a moment before that beautiful duet with Sophie and Octavian and things start to move and they begin their life together but the trio is just the one moment in the opera that stops and and we're able to reflect on what's happened and what has ceased to to be and um, it's very as a performer you feel such a weight of responsibility for that one moment and really it's difficult to sing technically but it's more difficult to sing because of that responsibility it's so special you've taken us to the end let's go back to the beginning what are you going to sing uh, with, with martin next the next excerpt is um again from the end of act one and it's just after the monologue which you've heard and Octavian has come back into the room and something has happened in the levee and in that monologue and the Marshallin has turned from being with Octavian and, and being in love with Octavian and something has happened. There's been an almost chemical change and she, she now knows that she can't be with him. She'll be making him unhappy if she stays with him. It's a relationship that can't ever work. And this is the moment that I was talking about previously where she, she tells Octavian that she stops all the clocks. And this is the moment that she tells him that he must leave her. Oh. 
Gentlemen, thanks to Catherine Modric and Martin Fitzpatrick. Um, the first two acts of Dear Rosen Cavalier were written and composed with relatively little difficulty, though Act Two did require some negotiation between composer and librettist and some reshaping. The Marshalin and her young lover, Octavian, were soon up and about their business of the day. The Silver Rose had been presented to Sophie, and Ox had begun to behave badly. Um, and indeed, Ox had found by now quite easily his wonderful tune. It was when the two men, composer and librettist, reached Act Three that the problems began. Uh, when Octavian, as Mariandel, is plotting to defeat Ox and eventually leave the Marshalin for Sophie. Hoffmannsthal's words came to Strauss not in one large, elegant arch, but in dribs and drabs, making it very difficult for the composer to see the architecture of the act. And for his part, Hoffmannsthal was in a dilemma. He was worrying about the character of the Marshalin. He'd originally written an opera about Octavian and Ox, or imagined one, and now this woman had begun to hijack his story. And in doing so, some of the Mozartian fun that perhaps he'd originally envisaged was beginning to disappear from the music and, indeed, the plot. His pantomime with a short ballet had become a deeply probing psychological drama about the passing of time, as we've just heard, the transience of love, as we've also just heard, and indeed the essential fragility of human feelings. But then who of us in the audience tonight, or on any night for De Rosen Cavalier, would have it any other way? Who doesn't wait for the, the final trio that we were talking about and when Sophie and Octavian and the Marshalin finally voice their thoughts and time stops or indeed the duet for Sophie and Octavian at the end of the last act? The Rosen Cavalier was given its first performance on Jan in January 1911 at the Dresden Court Opera. And that night it was the huge success with the audience that it's been ever since. Well, will you please welcome back Ed Gardner for our second little conversation. <laughs> what is it, do you think, that makes Dear Rosen Cavalier probably the best loved of, of the Strauss Hoffman style operas? Um, it's, it's, it's got so many flavours in it. I mean, the flavour of Old Vienna is extraordinary, isn't it? And you talk about the Walters being anachronistic, but actually much of the musical style is anachronistic. Uh, and it's, it's sometimes impossible to think that this is the composer who's already written Electra and Zalame. I mean, two pieces which are, are worlds apart from this. Um, I think it's the c combination of flavour, and it's the... Um, the for me, as a, as a musician, it's the, it's the combination of the... The comic, and the—I uh, mean, it's quite—it's quite blunt comedy actually with Baron Ox. Uh, it's a com combination of that with the extraordinary pathos of, of especially the Marshalin actually, but but that music. I've always—I've never been able to come to terms with the sweets of Rosenkavli that people do in concerts because I—I I don't think this piece really exists as a highlights of all the of all the sweetest moments. I think you have to earn those sweet moments and and um, those huge passages with Ox, which 
I mean, some people some people hate this opera for those. Actually, I mean, you know, really great musicians I know just don't don't get it. But I I love that combination. I love the I love the lightness of it. I love the frivolity of it, which makes the pathos uh, so much more touching for me. Some critic I once read years ago compared one of those sweets in Revigit as a little like sitting eating a whole box of rose and violet creams at one sitting. Yeah, I think that's right. Exactly. And I think that's right. Um, yeah. The opera was originally called Ox von Lerkenau. Yeah. It then became Der Rosenkavalier. Whose story is it, do you think? Um, well, I mean, uh, Ox is incredibly prevalent in the piece, but for me, he's, the, he's, he's a sort of vessel for, the, for, for everything that's going on around him. And he, he's an allegory, isn't he? He's an allegory for, for all the worst traits of man and, and a, a particular type of man. I mean, it's far more interesting for me, the... Um, um, the Marshallin story and this this idea that you've just been talking, I mean, extremely, extremely interestingly with Catherine about the this passing of time, um, uh, and the, the the cyclic nature of love and relationships, and the the fact that these two youngsters are going to may well be in the same you know could well be in the same situations. I mean, Octavia could be off hunting lynx in the forest, and and uh, and Sophie could be lying at home with a young, a much younger version of him. I, I mean. Um, and I think in this production, and certainly this time round, the heart of the piece for me absolutely is this monologue which Cather just sang so wonderfully at the end of Act One and the duet with Octavian, the struggle that they two have to um, come to terms with the transience of their relationship, actually. Um, and I think if you took the music away, you, could be, you would be much more... I mean, in a, in a sort of Bernard Shaw way, you'd be much more impressed... Um, within the play about what the Baron is and, and what he represents and, and, you know, this central character. But this, this music at the end of Act One is so moving, it's so extraordinary that it, it tilts... I think it tilts the opera in a completely different direction. Mm. There, is, there is one view about Ox that, that in a sense, um, he represents, perhaps for Hoffman's style, um, if not for Strauss, a, a rather snobbish point of view. You know, this countryman, um, you know, lumbers in from his estate somewhere up in Carpathia yeah. or even further to yeah. the east, um, where he's behaved as all countrymen behave, lots of children fathered around the area, um, yeah. and he comes in, and there is this little fragile porcelain world of the Marshall in Octavian, uh, and, and somehow he breaks the china, knocks the table over, and it's a piece of snobbery um, on the behalf of the supposedly sophisticated Viennese. Do you buy any of that? Oh, a little bit, but I think I mean there's there's social commentary all around this piece. I mean it's very it's very Figaro-like in that way, actually. And you know the I don't think either Strauss or Hoffmannsthal are particularly kind about the Marshallin's world either, um, or the Feldmarschall's world. Um, and I mean he's incredibly. I mean it's it's almost it's almost cartoonish the way he pa paints the Fanninal family at the beginning of Act Two. This sort of when I was telling the winds how I thought they should play it, I thought that you got to. I, I told them you need to imagine that you're a moneyed family from Essex, basically. Is what I, because, I mean, I think that's, that's the, that's the colour that Strauss gives it. And Ox is, yeah, I mean, he's a certain kind of snob himself. I mean, he, actually, that's, he's the worst kind, isn't he? He's just stupid and, and, you know, and, and entitled, yeah. Mm -hmm. We've been looking, as, as we've been talking, at wonderful stills from the production. Mm -hmm. What's it like to revisit it as a conductor? I, uh, it's amazing to revisit it because it's so huge. It's not. I mean, I've, I've conducted pieces as long, but but not as varied and not with so much flavour that you need to get across. Yet still keeping the shape shape of it. Um, 
I mean, if you think Wagner operas are longer, but in a way, with Wagner, you feel like you're on a journey. You have a natural momentum from the first note to the last. In this, you feel like you're creating new things and trying, trying to join it all up. So I'm, I feel incredibly privileged to be doing it, and luckily I'm doing it somewhere else again next year. So it's a piece I really... I just know that... I mean, every, every single performance, I try and find new things in it. And have there been second thoughts coming back to the production in terms of things that you've now understood that weren't entirely clear to you. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I think so. I mean, not, not just musically as well. I think, um, I mean, two of the central singers are new, and I think what they bring to it has really altered slightly what, you know, what I think the musical flavour should be. Give me an idea. Well, I think Mandy's pretty extraordinary as a marshal at the end of Act One, and incredibly affecting in a way that I didn't, I didn't experience in the same way before. Um, and... Uh, I think she paints it so well. And I just remember in the Zitzprobe, which is the, the first rehearsal that the singers and the orchestra have together, I remember, I remember being incredibly inspired by the way that she, that she coloured it. And in a sense, perhaps Sophie Bevan um, is, 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 is so clearly going to be absolutely a handful when she and Octavian get married yeah. in this production. Yes. That Octavian, you almost feel sorry at the end for Octavian, not <laughs> what he's got himself into, don't you? Yeah, um... She's strong. I mean, Sophie, the character, is incredibly strong-willed, and Sophie Bevan plays it so well. I mean, the end is interesting, isn't it, in this production? Are you all seeing it tonight? Yes. Yeah. Um, most, most people. Yeah. Uh, I'm, it's... I mean, this... I don't want to give too much away about it, but it's... it's, it's um, there's an ambiguity there, which is wonderful, which David paints so well, and it's it's so reminiscent of of the sort of things we look for at the end of a figure or a kazee, isn't it? That, that you don't know quite how things are going to turn out anyway. We shouldn't say more. We shall give something away. And one last question: We, we everybody, I think, um, waits to some extent, however much they're engaged in any production of Figure Four, that extraordinary time-stopping moment, the final trio. I, I wonder, as you stand in the pit mm. from the beginning, but particularly when you come back at the beginning of Act Three, you know there's a kind of musical Everest waiting. You know, before you could even begin oh, to right. think about putting your baton down and going home. No, I don't think of that at all. Really? No, no, not at all. It's a uh, uh, no, it doesn't, doesn't feel... It feels like part of the opera to me. Mm. I mean, mm. it's an extraordinary... It's one of the greatest things to stand in front of that I'll ever experience in my life, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not an excerpt, you know what I mean? It comes... The, you start the opera and uh, there's this amazing trio towards the end of it, which hopefully everything that we've, we've all done together, um, it, it reaches in some sort of culmination. Mm. We might ask Catherine to join us again if she's here, and, and there would be an opportunity for all of you here to ask questions rather than me. There's a roving microphone. If you'd like to put your hand up and catch my eye, then I will uh, get the roving microphone, which is just about to rove to you. Who would like to ask a question of either of our two guests this evening? Yes, the, the microphone is about to come, I think. It's coming. Gentleman in the second row. Thanks very much. It's been a very interesting talk. But one of the things I think you said was that the script came across in bits and pieces to Strauss. Well, how on earth did he cope with that? That's really my, my question for me, I fear. Um, the, uh, the answer was he didn't. If you read the correspondence, find it very easy. Uh, when, when Act 3 came in, pe in, in pieces rather than as a whole. 
um, uh, simply he, he, his urge to get on with the composition. I mean, he worked very fast when he was getting on with things. Um, was slightly frustrated. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure entirely that he quite understood why Hofmannsthal was having these doubts about, about the role of the Marshallin. It was perfectly obvious, I suspect, to him yeah. that the Marshallin was now the centre of interest. Yeah, yeah. He'd written Act so. One. He understood what Sophie said. And, and I think he had no problems. Hofmannsthal, though, often in the correspondence, has a very specific idea of what the piece he wanted to write was supposed to be. And, of course, it wasn't going to be that. I think that's what the problem was. Another question. For the guests, please. <laughs> oh. Do we have another question? Yes, in the, in the penultimate row. The microphone is there. Um, I've got a question for Catherine. Um, just to say that... Um, I think covering this role is probably extremely hard work, and I'm wondering what you actually get out of it as a cover. Well, yeah, it, it, is, it is a lot of hard work, but I think it's such a, an important role and something that I have been wanting to sing for such a long time, and it's, it's one of those roles that if I, if I never get to sing it in my career, I think I'll have, I'll have felt... I'd missed out on, on one of those things that I'd really want to do. And, but in the same way, I wouldn't want to go into a production having never, never worked on it before. And I don't think it's a role that you, 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 you learn and, and that's it, it's done. You, you, there's always something to learn. Uh, you know, as Ed was saying about in, in the, second, um, the second time you've done this at the revival. Mm -hmm. And... I think I'm really lucky to be covering someone like Amanda, who's such a, I mean, a wonderful singer, but such a wonderful actress. And, and to see all those, that grading of, of, mm. of emotion and, and empathy. And, and I learn something every, every time I, I watch it. And also in the, in the re cover rehearsals with, with Martin. And, and hopefully, if one day I'm lucky enough to be able to sing it in my own right, then, um, this, this is not a bad place to start learning it. <laughs> I think we've time for one more question, if anyone would like to ask one. We're being wonderfully English. Yes, at the very back row. Would I, any of you like to comment on the fact that Ox arguably has one of the best tunes? Because he has the, the waltz connected to him, you yeah. mean, yeah. Um, it's true, isn't it? But it's, all, it's also, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I mean, the... It comes quite sweetly in a couple of places, especially in Act Two. But but eventually we know it's a caricature when, mm. with with Ox's entrance, and that that's the most brutal thing of all, isn't it? That that the thing that he holds most dear is just shoved back in his face. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. It doesn't go anywhere like anybody else's. No, that's right. It is what it is. That's right. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of it's precisely like Ox. It's the kind of end, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, um, lots of thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being here. And remember that you will need at least several handkerchiefs on the course of this evening. And that's how it should be. Our thank yous to all our guests, Ed Gardner, uh, and to Catherine Broderick and to Martin Fitzpatrick. Thank you all very much for being here.